Well, I'm, I'm sitting down here with a friend of Crossings Community Church, John Ortberg, who's, of course, a published author of numerous books, a veteran pastor of both Midwest and West Coast. And it's a real privilege, John, to have you on the podcast today to talk about leadership from a Christian point of view. Thanks for being with us. Um, thank you, Bill. Crossings has become a uh, just very meaningful place to me. And so I'm glad to be here and get to see you again, not in California where we have met before, but in right. Oklahoma. Well, it is, you know, Oklahoma is a definitely not on most people's bucket list, mm-hmm. but I always tell people, once you move here, you'll yeah. never leave. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty remarkable place. So, well, I want to talk to you about leadership because you have such a proven track record in this arena and the people listening are in some capacity or another leading. They might be... Uh, paid in a ministry, and they might also just serve as volunteers and could run the gamut from working with kids to working with adults. But just taking a very, very high view of this topic, mm-hmm. when uh, when you're remembered as a leader years and years from now, mm. what would you like people to say about you? Mm. You know, um, there's a, a wonderful statement from Dallas Willard, who's somebody who influenced me a lot. Uh, and he used to say, the main thing God gets out of your life is the person you become. Mm-hmm. And that we tend to focus on what's the resume, what are my achievements, and I'm a three on the Enneagram, so I can be very focused on um, what have I done and what do people think about what I have done. Uh, so even asking the question of what do I want people to think of me is a little dangerous because yes. it goes into my shadow territory. Um, but to have become someone who really loves people, mm. uh, uh, I would love for that to be true. I, I We're recording this during the Lenten season, and I'm working on spending some time each day just reflecting on the previous day. Who was I with? What did I notice about them? What's going on in their hearts? Um, how could I pray for them? Is there anything that I could do just to try to get a little bit better at um, love? So uh, if I could choose anything, it would be, uh, you love me. You know, John, for those of us who know you through your writings or your preaching, uh, that's one of the things that people do love about you is that comes out in the messaging so strong. Uh, so often, I, it's interesting Many people, the response to that question would be things they led, things they touched. But uh, just to bring it back down to what this is really all about, it's the people, leadership is a people-centric enterprise, and that you'd notice that. That's good. I I, I find that uh, encouraging. I find that challenging. Yeah, That's such a great reminder. Well, on that note, over the last 20, 30 years, maybe longer, there has been a great deal of influence that the uh, business or the commercial sector has had on the church. Mm -hmm. I mean, for generations in church work, church leaders spoke to church leaders about the church work. And then beginning, really, in in the modern era, we began to look at people like Jim Collins and Marcus Buckingham and and other influential writers, Malcolm Gladwell. These are all great writers, great thinkers. And so that's come into the church. And so more and more church leaders refer to those folks. What's been good about that influence within the church? Mm-hmm. And what's maybe been some of the not so good 
as a result of that business enterprise coming into the church setting. Yeah, I think the good part of it is people are people. Human nature is human nature. Um, organizations or communities are communities, and there's certain constants around that. So um, to be able to cast a noble vision that inspires people, that's a really good thing. Um, to be able to marshal resources and leverage them effectively against a worthy mission, that's a good thing. To be able to evaluate, now these resources are not working well, um, to be able to get the right person lined up with the right job and give them feedback and be developmental so that they can get better. To build a team, have the right people on the right chairs in the team, uh, have the team move in the right direction, have the team be healthy. Uh, all of those things, I think, are wonderful gifts. Um, I think we've all had the experience. One of the, one of the early great leaders that I had was when I was in high school and I sang in the choir. It's a guy named Lenny Lundstrom. And I, I did not know it then. He was a very good musician, but he was a great leader. Mm. And there are certain mantras. We would kill ourselves to try to sing really well for Lenny. And other people would give out praise like candy. Uh, he did not give praise unless you had done really well. So we would work really hard for that. And one of his mantras was we would you know, sing very hard through a technical part of some song, and he would just pause and say, do it again, do it again. And anybody who sang under him, they would be able to quote that now many, many decades later. So uh, those capacities that leaders bring to call out the best in us, to cast a vision of what might be, those are wonderful. And I think uh, there are lots of folks. I love Abraham Lincoln. I, I mm. cannot get enough of, I'm always reading some Lincoln book or another. And so to learn about uh, leadership through people like that is a great gift. I think the dark side of it is um, when we start to think about the church uh, in terms of um, metrics, results, uh, celebrity culture, yeah. uh, the glamorization of leaders, um, uh, we can start to create cultures that reinforce narcissism. It's interesting. Uh, a guy who is on the board of the ministry organization my wife leads is uh, Pat Gelsinger, and Pat's the CEO of Intel. Mm -hmm. He's an amazing That's a pretty leader. good job. Um, he was named a few years ago the least narcissistic CEO in America. That's funny that there's like a, a tracking of that. There actually is. They had metrics. They developed like uh, in the annual report of the corporation, how big was the picture of the CEO and how often is the name of the CEO mentioned and how many times does the CEO use the pronouns I, me, mine. So there were all these ways of monitoring and Pat was named, literally, you look it up, the least narcissistic CEO in America. I think sometimes in the church world, when we import stuff from that, along with that, we can import some of the worst parts of it. And I think because churches uh, are residential spiritual communities, and the leaders often are also people that stand up on the platform and talk about life, virtue, love, excellence, God, uh, and try to embody that, um, a cult of celebrity. Yeah. And people identifying with the leader where a lot of the tone of the church is, how's the leader doing? 
Is he happy? Is he doing well? He's my guy. There's a lot of stuff that feeds into that uh, cult of celebrity, uh, narcissism, lack of accountability. Uh, that's a real problem. It's uh, it's interesting you 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 bring up that cult of celebrity because mm-hmm. that sometimes is in business. Like with the era of Steve Jobs at Apple, there's no question cult of personality, keen insight, that sort of thing. But where he's remembered for really the products, the right. innovation, and so forth, not for uh, not for some trend he started. And uh, as celebrity culture has come into church, uh, as we talk about this, just not long ago was a very famous podcast about a church in the Pacific Northwest right. that was all about that sort of thing. And yet when you're in the midst of it, you're not always the best judge of the toxicity of it. So how could uh, you know someone listening, uh, because so many of our churches uh, do use those business examples and so forth. And as you pointed out, some of that's really great yep. stuff. How can, is there is there any sort of internal barometer a person, a leader could use to say, you know, that's a bridge too far? Yeah, I, I was listening to somebody the other day who's a really good thinker, New Testament theologian, and he was saying he doesn't like the word leadership, he just likes the word followership. Mm. And I get that. I think it's a wonderful point in a lot of ways. I think the need for humility and uh, needing to be a follower is a very important thing. When Jesus talked about leadership, most often it was to warn people about it. Yeah, and I think that's because we all have a kingdom. Uh, you know, your kingdom is the reign of your effective will. It's very hard to lead people mm-hmm. without violating their kingdom. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I think uh, sin always gets into everything. And the better and more powerful something is when it's good, the worse it is when sin infects it. Oh, wow. So I think because leadership can impact so many people, that's why leadership is so toxic when it becomes damaged. I was talking to some people very recently about a system that they're in where clearly there is toxicity and unhealth. I think one question to ask is, if I was on the outside looking into this situation, how would it sound? And those podcasts from Mars Hill were fascinating. If you're listening from the outside and you hear a story, you think, how can anybody tolerate that? Who would put up with that? When you're inside, it feels totally different. God is at work. Amazing things are happening. I'm not sure that I'm correct about this. So just asking the question, pretend for a moment that I was completely outside the system. I didn't know any of these names. Somebody described to me these behaviors, these comments, these words, um, these dynamics. Uh, Would I say that that's crazy, unhealthy, and needs to be addressed? Or would I say, nope, I think that's really on target. I think that helped people a ton. That's that. That's just what we need to hear. Is that kind of insight of outside looking in? Would I say you think about that could be in a family, that could be well, in a dating relationship. There's just so many places where you can plug that one in. That's exactly right. The, the if you are living in a crazy system, you have to be crazy to survive. Yeah. So if you're in a marriage with an alcoholic, and you want to keep being married then you have to uh, adjust your own responses, uh, your approach to accountability, honesty. You have to cramp in order to make space for that. Mm. And um, 
Uh, but the problem is when you've been in that system for a long time, it feels normal from the inside. It, it looks and feels like, yeah, this is just ordinary life. It's sort of like that pound or two you put on every year. Yeah. And then after 10 or 15 years, the doctor says, do you realize what's become of your no, health? No, I had no idea. Yeah, huh? yeah. it was just one, uh, one Dorito too many. Just uh, All right, I, that's all heavy stuff. So let's come up for air a little bit, shifting gears. Uh, you could sit down over a cup of coffee with three leaders from history. Mm. Who do you sit down with? Yeah, uh, Abraham Lincoln for sure. Jesus, it kind of goes without saying. Um, That's your only Bible one. You get, you got Jesus, okay. so nobody else from the Bible. Abe right. Lincoln, Jesus. Uh, I also enjoy a lot reading about Winston Churchill. Oh. And I think partly because I love communication and uh, his communication was so extraordinary. And he was just such a colorful character. Oh, he's a, yeah, a so. masterful politician yep. who didn't always make people happy and occasionally what he wins the second world war and shortly thereafter is voted out of office and oh. so it goes but then he's back in i guess so. there's a lot of people yep. who would say basically he had about 18 months when england stood alone against hitler and his speeches rallied everybody yeah. and he got it right then and was wrong for much if not most of the rest of his career but uh, i would love to yeah. Uh, be at a dinner with him. Boy, he might have tea, not coffee, but I like your choice. That's he would good. have whiskey. Those are, yeah, I think yeah. He, he would, which would make the whole thing more colorful, yeah. certainly. Okay. Um, years ago, I was introduced to a concept that, especially for Christian leaders, that uh, using the example of the Apostle Paul is that everybody needs a Paul in their life, mm. someone who's building into them, challenging yeah. them, maturing yeah. them. And everybody needs a Timothy, somebody that if uh, that is, if you've gotten to a place of your own spiritual life that you can mm -hmm. pour into others. So with that in mind, where do you go looking for a Paul? Where do you go looking for a Timothy? Yeah. I imagine in your life, you've, I know Dallas Willard has been a Paul to you. So how do you find these people? Yeah, uh, I have been, I was talking to a friend about this not too long ago, just extraordinarily fortunate in a number of people. The first pastor I worked for, John F. Anderson, was a person of immense joy, believed in me, encouraged me. Uh, and then David Hubbard from Fuller Seminary, a guy named Lou Smees that was also from Fuller, Neil Warren, uh, a guy named Max Dupree, who's an amazing uh, leader, a guy named Sam Reeves. Dallas Willard for sure. So uh, I have been, uh, and I don't know why, just extraordinarily mm. fortunate. I had a good relationship with my dad, and I think yeah. in some ways that kind yeah. of set me up for those kind of relationships. Um, By the way, everybody listening to this of a certain vintage just kind of turned a little green with envy because you mentioned some stellar, just amazing people, stellar names right yes. there. Yeah. Yeah, I had a preaching teacher, Ian Pitt Watson, who would be on that list also. Did Max Dupree give you any Herman Miller furniture just from that relationship? I mean, did you come away with an Eames fiberglass chair? Uh, I don't have any of Max's furniture, but oh. Max passed away just a couple of years ago, and I did his uh, service. Oh. And uh, For those listening, Max Dupree was the, the head honcho of Herman Miller. Office for I'm correct yes. on that. No, yes. that's exactly and, right. Uh, yep. I'm a Michigan native, so oh, no Ma kidding. Yeah, Max is a it was a legend in yes. that state for yeah. what he did in uh, turning office furniture into something that wasn't boring. But now we have around our dinner table. Yep, yep. And uh, there's a thousand Max Dupree stories about the nature of leadership. Yeah. Uh, first task of a leader 
-hmm. is to define reality. Yeah. And uh, so I have lots and lots of wisdom from X. But no, he didn't give me any furniture uh, at all. I don't know what that's about. Well, um, okay. But I would say look for somebody that you can learn a lot from and that you deeply admire. Uh, and then there has to be a certain level of chemistry. They have to want to be around you. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, for people who are looking for someone like that, um, uh, I think it's important to take it one step at a time. Sometimes a person will approach a stranger and ask, will you mentor me? Mm. And trying to go from zero to 100, I think, is not a good idea. So ask for a single conversation and bring some value to them. Uh, you know, a thought, an idea, uh, expressions of appreciation, buying them coffee. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so take that relationship one step at a time. And then I think it's the same thing on the other hand, uh, getting older to ask, who can I pour back into? And I've had to be more intentional about that, Bill. I, I found being a mentee for whatever reason of health or unhealth came very naturally to mm -hmm. me. Being a mentor, I have less clarity as to whether I'm being helpful for someone or not. And Everyone it, listening right now is like, I'll sign up to have John mentor me, <laughs> and it'll be of great value. Well, um, But I hear what you're saying. There is that sense where uh, did, did this conversation help you in some yeah, way? Yeah, what, what I find is um, uh, if I give a talk, I have a sense, I, I may be off, but I have a pretty clear sense of, yep, I think that was really helpful, or nope, I feel like that missed the mark, and why? If I have an hour conversation with somebody, I'm much fuzzier on that. Yeah. And I think there are people whose wiring is different, who are naturally great coaches, who when they got to the end of a talk, they'd be able to take you back to, this was a key moment. Right here, I saw that person was really moved. Um, here, I could have challenged them, but I didn't. And so I have to be more of a student of, that's part of why, like yeah. I mentioned before, I'm trying to take some time each day to think back on my encounters with people the previous day mm -hmm. and look at um, how are they doing? What did they say? What was their mood like? Part of that is because I'm trying to get better at yeah. those conversations and how can I serve um, to mentor or coach? Because I feel like I got such a gift from that but it doesn't feel to me like it comes nearly as naturally as given talks does. Well, it just in there so much wisdom of you need to have the built-in reflective space to think back on yeah. the conversation, to think about what was said, what you said, what they said, was that helpful? I think in my own life, I tend to move from thing to thing to thing, appointment to appointment to appointment without the reflective space. So you're just giving me something to chew on there and imagine those who are listening that's something to chew on right there is of the people that God's put in my path that I have some sort of influence over, what do I know about them? What do I know about their needs? We were, I was just talking the other day to a guy who's written a wonderful book, uh, Managing Leadership Anxiety, oh, Steve Cuss. Steve Cuss. That is a terrific book. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh it's, just, it's, it's a brilliant book. Yes. But he was talking about uh, his model of development as he was being educated for ministry uh, it's super simple. Uh, it's action, reflection, action. Yeah. And uh, that was just built into uh, his education process. And there used to be uh, CPE, clinical pastoral education, in yeah. certain traditions. Yeah. And so that uh, engage in ministry, preaching, counseling, leading, whatever. And then you take a chunk of time to write and reflect on it. Yeah. What happened? How did I experience it? 
what worked, what didn't, where was God in it, and then take that back into your next activity. And I think just something as simple as that model would serve people well. But you're right. A lot of us get so anxious to get stuff done that we don't do the reflection part. And we really short-circuit our our growth because we just end up making the same mistakes over and over. We always have these debates about breadth and depth. And so often we end up shallow because we're just spread too thin. And that's not news. We've known that forever. Franklin Covey and those people were out there to try to help us. You know, Stephen Covey, you know, that years ago would write on that. Seven there's, Habits. There's all kinds of variations of Covey's work, but it's always trying to get us to focus on what's most important. But yeah. we still focus on what's not sometimes, or we focus, we have too many important things. I'm glad you mentioned Steve's book. Um, uh, the best part of uh, his Audible is he reads it, and he's Australian. Oh, so, yeah. you know, you get yeah. this great Australian accent, and he's a Great storyteller. So I hope to bring him on this podcast at some point. Um, well, you have a, a legendary wife, as, at least in my eyes and the eyes of many. Mm-hmm. Nancy is a phenomenal leader in her own right. She has served on pastoral roles, I know of at least in a couple different yes. places yep. that you have served. And um, for those who are listening, who are married to someone who also is in the trenches of ministry leadership, how do you keep work at work? That is, how do you keep the ministry? Because if I imagine if your relationship's anything like the relationship I have with my wife, who's very engaged in ministry, not in a paid way, but in a in a deeply uh, involved way, uh, there's times where I have to say, you know, once we enter into like the bedroom area or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean anything by that, by the way. But I mean, just- Oh, sure be, you yeah, don't, know that, We yeah. all know where yeah. you are headed with that. I don't mean anything by that. And, and you're not afraid about being rumpled either. Yeah, we're going we're no. to have to cut that part. Um, uh, no, and there's, <laughs> no, no, there's, no, no. No, you can't cut that part. I will refuse to sign off on this interview if you cut that part. All right, we'll keep that part. But all there's right. there's got to be a space in your house where you're like, in this room, yeah. we don't talk about church. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for Nancy, and I, you know, when we dated each other, we knew that we were both interested in ministry, but it wasn't what pulled us together. We enjoy each other a lot. Yeah. And we've certainly had lots of issues and seasons of intense, difficult stuff to work through. Um, but there's pretty much always been a sense of enjoying each other and also of being interested in ministry and how does church ministry work. There have been adjustments in that. Uh, talking about leadership, if you think about leadership as a spiritual gift, Nancy's gift of leadership is much higher than mine. And I'm more of a communicator. When we first got married, I would never have been able to acknowledge that even to myself. Yeah. And then over time, it became unavoidably clear, and it was immensely painful for me for a while. And I felt like, oh, man, she's just going to keep going up and up and up, and I'm going to go down and down and down. And then going through the pain, a question that was super helpful to me is, do I want to be the kind of man whose wife has to diminish her gifts in order for me to feel good about myself? Wow. And uh, when I would ruminate over my limits and her gifts, uh, that question was really helpful to me because if I was just ruminating, I could spiral into all kinds of negative scenarios. But when I would come back to that question, do I want her to have to be less so I can feel better about me? I knew the answer to that was no. And so eventually it got to the point where uh, a long time ago, it hit this point, 
I just love the fact that she has the gifts that she does and that she's able to lead so well and celebrate that and share and feel great freedom with that and no need to have any amount of that attached to my own self with it. So there have been those kind of, when we're both involved in ministry, uh, uh, what does she do well? What do I do well? What does she do better than me? What do I? How do we think through that stuff? And then as well, particularly when we were in Chicago and we both worked at the same church and we had kids at home, where uh, it would actually probably have been okay for us to talk about that stuff a lot, but the kids got sick of it and they actually said to us, you're talking too much about work. So we had to put a moratorium on when we come home, when we have dinner, when the family is together, we will not talk about that. And that that was a very deliberate, intentional. Uh, it's tough when, when you draw. love the ministry, yeah. when you're called to the ministry, and then you're you know in the trenches of yep. it, it, it can sometimes cloud out or crowd out all hobbies, interests, others. So if you're not talking about it, yeah, there's there's a lot, not a lot, and so I love that your kids. My kids have been there too. My yeah. kids have definitely been there too. And I, I before we get to the how do you like strike a boundary here is I, I appreciate that um, that vulnerability that asking yourself, do I want to suppress my spouse's gifts, mm-hmm. and I uh, in order for me to have certain position or feel good about who I am and and uh, in in all truth, I it took me years to come to that realization in my own home. I thought I'm the one called to this, and she's mm-hmm. supporting, and she's far wiser and smarter. And uh, there were many a conversation that was, uh, if you'd have taken my advice a while ago, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be, or you wouldn't be, or this wouldn't be in this situation. And I moved from resentment to actually realization and then now we joke about it all the time in fact in our home we have a day once a year when i'm right about something and we celebrate that that's that one moment when i'm like hey wait i'm right about this kind of like the day of atonement yeah it turns once a year you're allowed to go into the holy of holies yeah and she always gives she always has that look like don't get too excited yeah i get the rest of the year yeah but but all right let's talk about the boundary side how do you your kids obviously were one part of it is like hey Mm -hmm. could we not talk about this yeah um and uh, is there a, do you do you have anything like that set up or have you had that set up? You know, we're both super pee on the Myers Briggs. Okay, so um, organized boundaries and that kind yeah. of stuff. Like, you know, the fact that we started out with three kids and they're all three still alive, we feel really really yeah, good about. Go. Um, uh, but so it'll be it'll be a much more informal, spontaneous process for us. But for sure. Uh, Nancy actually will talk about this quite a lot, a study that involved a couple different schools that found uh, when we asked the question, what sustains people in ministry leadership? Uh, uh, a, a big litmus test was, do they have a hobby in which they engage during which time seems to stand still? Wow. Well, that's interesting. Isn't it? Okay, what's your hobby? And so... Um, I love to surf. I'm not good at it, but I love to surf. Okay, all right. I enjoy playing golf. I used to be a tennis player when I was growing up, mm-hmm. but um, I shifted over into golf. Um, I love to read. Uh, I love music. I play the piano. I'm not good at it, but uh, I play recreationally, but I okay. enjoy that a lot. Uh, I enjoy traveling with Nancy a lot. Um, but yeah, I think those, it's just super important for people that are doing ministry, really in leadership in any way, um, that your life be way bigger than your job. That's good. 
That is so good. I, I just as you say that, I'm thinking, yeah, that's true. In my home, this is how nerdy my wife and I are. Uh, she loves ancient Egypt. Like, oh, cool! Every documentary wow. we know the main historians of ancient wow. Egypt from all these documentaries. Mm. Haven't been there yet, and I am fascinated with the Roman Empire. So we joke that we each have something to tell the other person. And sometimes they overlap, you know, in different areas. I just eras, got it's the so audible, much fun. audible book, SPQR. Oh, is yes. that it? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I've, le- I've read it twice. That's Mary Beard, and yeah, yeah, she's yeah. amazing. I've, I've, not, I've, I've just downloaded yeah. it two days ago, yeah. so I'm eager to start I, My it. wife jokes, I always tell her that if I, if, if I inherited millions of dollars, yeah. I would go on vacation and hire Mary Beard to go with <laughs> us as a family vacation to give us the inside tour of wow. Rome. That lady... Some great documentaries. Oh, all right, cool. all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna get too deep in the weeds on this one. So, all right, um, you and Nancy both have experienced some ups and downs in ministry. Uh, just what have you learned in both extremes? Hmm. What have you learned about yourself, about God, during the ministry ups and the ministry downs? Um. Uh, I would say in the ups. Um, the joy of uh, being able to contribute and be involved in ways where you feel um, fully alive. Eric Little from Chariots of Fire, when I run, I feel his pleasure in me. That's such a great image. And uh, it's not really at all about scale. It's just about the joy of running when you were made to run. I always love Mm. that verse from Psalm 19 that the sun... Uh, rejoices like a strong man rejoices to run his course. Yeah, and so that picture of being able to do ministry with that sense, I love a lot. Um, in the down areas, it would be much fuller and richer. Um, I would say one of them would be. Uh, I used to think that life was supposed to be joyful, and if there was pain, it was my job to try to fix it and stop it. And now my understanding is much more there will always be deep pain and there can be deep goodness together with it. And they're like two faucets that are on in the bathtub. And so yeah. to be able to embrace the goodness and joy and live with, name, honor the pain and the hurt uh, and to meet other people in that place. Like there's a lot of people I'm able to meet with and talk with because they know that I've been through painful stuff that I never would have been able to if I hadn't. You know, you think about how often in the New Testament the word persevere shows, oh, well, in the Old Testament as well. And it's not something we preach on, teach on, or muse on a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And part of that probably is in general our lives in the Western world pretty good. Yeah. But thinking in terms of God meeting us in both places yeah. In both extremes, that yeah. in, uh, in His omnipresence, maybe that's the joy of those old creeds. So, so few churches are creedal, and mine is not creedal based. But sometimes you'd repeat those creeds about mm-hmm. things of God's omnipresence, mm-hmm. and uh, He can meet you in all places and in all situations. So. And there's words that can only come to mean something to you when you enter into a situation yeah. that is different. And uh, one of the phrases that I read over these last couple of years that's been helpful, there's an old uh, spiritual guide writer named Francis Fenlon, and he writes about a cross, and he says, sometimes resisting the cross is harder than the cross itself. Mm. So 
um, when there is suffering and you can't fix it, yeah. uh, the prayer, your will be done and mm. surrender. Uh, and just, you know, that the serenity prayer, give me the yeah. serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. That takes on a whole different meaning when there is a really difficult cross. And if my mindset is, this is terrible, this is awful, I can't stand this, this must not happen, that can actually create even more suffering or more unnecessary suffering than the object of suffering itself. Well, and it, it, so often we know those first few lines of the serenity prayer, but when you read the whole thing in its entirety, you know, that uh, to accept the world as it is, right? Not not as I want it to be. But, yeah, the courage to know the difference, yeah. taking one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, uh, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking the world as he did, not as I want it, but as it is, uh, knowing that he will make everything right if I surrender fully to him so that I might be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him I forever. I like that. I, I, you, now people are going to Google the serenity prayer because yeah, everyone thought they knew the serenity prayer, but they yeah. really only know the few li- first yeah. few lines. But the, the, the thing in its entirety is, is tremendous. It is absolutely beautiful. Well, connected to this, the ups and downs idea is how do you avoid both, um, and maybe avoids the wrong term, but how do you uh, come to terms with uh, the idealism that a lot of ministries built on and at the same time avoid or deal with the cynicism that can come with ministry experience. Mm-hmm. You know, you think in our early days we were going to save the world and build churches, and then 20, 30 years later, there's, uh, I think of every British Anglican priest. You know, if, every, if you ever watch British dramas, I asked a friend of mine who's from England, I said, why is every priest and every British drama a fake? <laughs> and he goes, no, that's what they do. They poke fun, but they always kind of have this, I'm giving up type of deal. Mm-hmm. And I'm not picking on Anglican priests, by the way. But mm-hmm. uh, So how do we avoid both the idealism or the cynicism, or maybe maybe come to terms with it, maybe not avoid it? Yeah. You know, it's a great question, but I don't know if I've ever thought about it in that way before. I sure think for all of us who do ministry, there's just going to be a journey. Mm-hmm. And there's certain things um, that you can't learn except by experience. Okay. So mm-hmm. uh, I think... Uh, the hopefulness of youth is a natural thing. Mm-hmm. And the acceptance of limitations is going to be more informed yeah. as we get older. Um, uh, I think cynicism is a really important thing to guard against, and churches tend to be places that breed cynicism. And... Um, you know, cynicism is different than skepticism. You can be, yeah. uh, uh, you can be skeptical that it's going to rain tomorrow. You can't be cynical that it's going to rain tomorrow. Cynicism is always about people. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's always something fearful about cynicism because, uh, going back to the serenity prayer, courage involves facing, naming, taking action. Mm. And uh, I don't know of any courageous, cynical people. No. And so I think as we grow older, to keep asking in this situation, what would a courageous person do Mm. can help me not go down the path of cynicism. I like that. You know, if you think about cynicism, uh, I'm a Gen Xer, so they, you know, born with a chip on my shoulder uh, type of deal. And that was all part of the, this was 
in my coming up years was the era of grunge, which wasn't really pleasant music to mm -hmm. listen to. No one's, no one's really listening to that right now. Maybe yeah. it'll make a comeback. Yeah. But it had kind of this darker, darker tone kind of thing. But, but it actually, cynicism is a coward's way out. I mean, yeah. I, to take it yes. the opposite of it's courageous not to be cynical. In other yeah. words, to just go, whatever. Right. That's actually just weak. Yeah. But, but it's, to, it's, it's a protective shell. It's weak, uh, but it doesn't feel weak. It enables yeah. you to hide That's right. uh, the choice of um, fear and avoidance. Yeah. And um, that's always toxic to the spirit. All right, happier subject. Yes. What are your devotional habits? How do you feed your soul? Yeah. Um, so for the last couple of years, uh, when it's been a more intense season, uh, I will find myself waking up during the night every night. And so uh, I've needed to have just a plan for what do I do. And initially, I would uh, always get up and read and do the first few pages of Henry Nouwen, who is a good place, of good person to read in a time of mm. uh, pain. Um, now, my wife and I live in a... Uh, one room cabana that we rent from folks. So I don't have another room that I can go away to. So I will listen to a talk from Dallas Willard. There's just tons of those talks online. And then um, when I get up, uh, I'll say this for anybody listening to us so that they don't feel oppressed. Dallas Willard would often talk about the notion of a daylight quiet time is a burden that just crushes the life out of a lot of people. Mm. Wow, say that again. Just say that one uh, more time. The idea of a daily quiet time is a burden that crushes the life out of a lot of people. Wow. And I think it's really important to recognize that. When I was a kid growing up uh, in the tradition that I grew up in, if somebody asked, how's your spiritual life going, which is a great way to kill a conversation. Of course. But if they did, my immediate thought would be, uh, have my devotions been regular and long? Sure. And if they have my spiritual life going great, and I realized at one point, like, if you measure spiritual maturity by devotional practices, the Pharisees would come out on top. Ooh. So how do that we stinks. measure spiritual life in a way that doesn't make the Pharisees come out on top? Mm -hmm. And I asked Dallas that one time, and he said he would ask himself, am I growing more or less irritable these days? And uh, am I growing more or less easily discouraged these days? Mm. Because if I'm living in the love of Jesus— uh, I will be less irritable. And if the peace of Christ is reigning in my heart, I will be less easily discouraged. So uh, this is all by preamble by way of saying, over the last couple of years, when I get up in the morning, mostly just because the level of pain and difficulty in my life has been quite great, I have had to have time to be alone with God just to get a thought that can help me move forward through the day. Mm. And so uh, I will start by reciting the Lord's Prayer and kind of placing myself in that while I stand up. Ignatius talked about just take a moment before you enter in, and then I'll sit down. Uh, I will go through Psalm 121. When my dad died two and a half years ago, I was reciting the last words of that psalm. The Lord will watch over you, coming out, you're going in, both now and forevermore. Took his last breath, never breathed in. So I will use that as a way of saying, help me with this. Uh, I will go through what are three things that I was grateful for yesterday. Uh, I will take some time to do just kind of mindful prayer where I'm mostly breathing, maybe around the word of peace. Uh, and then uh, I will do a bit of scripture and then think through my day yesterday and who were people that I was meeting with. So 
uh, that's ways that I'll start my morning. I have a good friend, Rick Blackman, and every morning at 6.15, Monday through Friday, we call each other up. Um, uh, how was your day yesterday? Temptations? What'd you face? What are you doing today? Pray with each other. We love that. So um, that's, uh, that's my morning. Well, that's, it always is, to me, one of the most fascinating questions to ask a spiritual leader is how they feed their soul. I love your answers to that. During the, during the pandemic, uh, I grew up Baptist and Lutheran. So Baptist Church, Lutheran school. Oh, wow. And so part of our religion class was uh, Luther's small catechism. Mm-hmm. And I had to, for class, memorize parts of it. Wow. So I went back to re-memorize parts That's of it. That's wonderful. And I have found, uh, of all things, now this isn't in Luther's small, but that was the gateway into the Athanasian Creed. Huh. And so as I fall asleep at night, I recite what I can remember, because that... Uh, Anyone who has creeds memorized knows the Athanasian is a real long one. So I, I can't say as it's committed uh, fully to memory, but it helps me fall asleep at night. Mm-hmm. And like yourself, when I wake up in the middle of the night, I I turn to the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. And if I am still awake, then I move into one. of I just start mulling over one of the creeds. I fall asleep to the Trinity. It's that's, pretty good. That's it's not bad. Trinity's a good thing to fall asleep towards. All right, last question. Uh, you get the Bible and one book to sit with for the next 365 days. Mm -hmm. One year, Bible, and just that one book. Yeah, super easy. Uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines. Uh, It's a book by Dallas Willard. It's the first book of his that I read, and it has impacted me uh, by far the most of any book that I have ever read. And uh, I can just keep going back and going back and going back through it. I can still remember the seat that I was sitting on in the plane when I read, he said, the thesis is that authentic transformation is genuinely possible if we're willing to do one thing, and that is to arrange our lives around the rhythms and practices Jesus engaged in to remain fully at home with and receive power from the Father. I was like, somebody has thought this out. That's it. Yeah. Well, I was going to guess Dallas Willard, but I wasn't going to guess the book. You're going to be right. very good. Well, John, thanks so much for sitting down for this conversation. It's I have found it personally enriching. I know those who are listening will find it enriching as well. So thank you. Thanks, Bill. It's a joy.